I don't know how many of you were here on Sunday night, but I felt good that Tony Switek got to experience my Wednesday spotlight experience with the angle of the lights. That was that was uh, that felt good for me to have someone else share in my experience. Tonight we're going to be digging into the book of Zechariah. As I mentioned last week, we really focused on the references to the Messiah in the book of Zechariah, and there were many. And really those were the ones that we can be absolutely confident in because the New Testament quotes them, or at the very least alludes to them in completely uncertain terms. There's really many more references probably to the Messiah, but we don't want to go beyond what Scripture 100% confirms. This week, we're going to look at Zechariah's description of the end, or perhaps the end times. And there's going to be some challenging um, interpretation questions we need to ask, because just because something is in the future for Zechariah doesn't necessarily mean it's in the future for us. Some of the things Zechariah describes have certainly happened, others have not, and we'll talk through in just a moment why sometimes that can be challenging, not impossible certainly, nor uh, something that we should shy away from, but it can be challenging to think through this. So today we're going to focus on the end times in the book of Zechariah or what he has to say about the end. Now, there's two main themes that run through the book of Zechariah, and I do want to talk about these and start really with a scriptural application here because we are going to get into symbols and some things that Zechariah sees. But I do want you to remember that the entire book, taken together, really has two main points. Johnny got into both of these points, really, in his message two weeks ago. The first is this, that God will establish or build his temple. That was the short term, and he did that. And he will establish his kingdom. That's the long term. And in one sense, he already has. His spiritual kingdom has arrived. Jesus Christ issued it in when he came the first time. He will establish his physical kingdom when he returns the second time. And again, this just starts to get us into part of the challenge of Zechariah. When is Zechariah referring to Christ's initial appearance? When is Zechariah referencing Christ's final appearance? And we'll talk about some of those today. But this is one of the main things. God will establish his temple and he will establish his kingdom. The second thing, and this is, of course, originally in context, the Israelites, although we're going to talk about how through the New Testament we can apply this, in fact, to Christians, but the Israelites have a responsibility to obey and follow God's instructions. Now, in the verses, this is not conditional. It's not obey and I will establish all these things. God says, I'm going to establish all of these things. However, he does say that if you obey, then you will prosper. So this is encapsulated, although it's in many other places, in Zechariah 6.15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So two themes. God will rebuild, but the Israelites must obey. And again, Johnny mentioned two weeks ago that already the Israelites were not doing a great job of this. This really isn't Zechariah's theme. We do see some indications that the Israelites weren't obeying very well by the end of the book. And then we have Malachi where we find out they definitely weren't obeying, but we'll leave that till we get to the book of Malachi. So God will rebuild. Let's obey. Those are the major themes. 
Now, I wanted to establish that because now we're going to get into Zechariah's prophetic visions. Really, uh, the book can largely be divided into three sections. A clearly um, symbolic future event section, which goes from about chapter 1, verse 7, to chapter 6, verse 15. We then have a historical interlude, things that seem to really have occurred in chapter 7, and then God describes some things that will occur in chapter 8. And then we have a series of oracles. Oracles are things that God says that need to be passed on to others. So, the first section of the book we want to talk about tonight, the first section of end times prophecy that Zechariah has for us, are found in these symbolic visions. Now, in total, Zechariah has eight visions. They are introduced to us in Zechariah 7 and 8a. Zechariah uses that same formula that Haggai used. And on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night and behold... So the eight things that he then describes for the next six chapters are all things that Zechariah saw in a dream or in his mind at night. These are a series of eight visions. Now, if you were to open up a Bible commentary or a theology textbook, there would be a term for this first six chapters of Zechariah, and it would be the term apocalyptic, okay? Which, again, at first blush in English, apocalyptic to us means the end of the world. However, that's actually, it tells you how pervasive the Bible is in our culture because the book of Revelation is the prototype of apocalyptic literature, and it describes the end of the world. But that's not actually what the word means. The word in Greek literally just means to call out from, or rather to bring light to something, to reveal something that previously had not been known. If we think about the book of Revelation, this certainly applies. John is seeing events that up to this point, the details of which have not been known. No one knew to the detail that John does in the book of Revelation what was going to happen at the end. But that's what an apocalyptic vision means. It means something that up to this point has not been revealed. And Zechariah, amongst the minor prophets, is really quite unique in this. He's given more new information than any other prophet. And he's given eight visions sequences of events and symbols that work together to show Zechariah a truth that God will in the future accomplish. Now the challenge is that some of these events are short-term, some of them are long-term, and even more confusingly, some of them are both, as in they're going to be fulfilled in the short term, but they still apply in the long term. Just because they've occurred doesn't mean they won't occur again, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not going to go into extreme detail on these eight visions, and here's why. We have to be really careful as Christians not to assume something Scripture does not say. It's really sort of like parables. When Jesus speaks in parables, most of the time he speaks the parable, the crowd is confused, and then the disciples come and they ask Christ, what did that parable mean? And he explains it. And when we have an explanation of a parable, we can be really confident in the meaning. 
When Jesus does not explain a parable, and there are a few parables he does not explain, we have to be much more careful. We can't assume a meaning to a parable that Scripture does not teach. The same thing is true of the symbols we're going to talk about today. Some of them are explained by John and Revelation. Some of them are explained by the New Testament, or some are explained by Zechariah himself, but not all of them are. So we have to be careful as we talk about these things. Now, the eight visions are broadly in two categories. The first three and the last three are all visions that have to deal with God dealing with sin. It seems as if the first three visions actually describe the spiritual world as it was going on before Zechariah's day and during Zechariah's day. In fact, Zechariah describes imagery that John would later see. For example, Zechariah's first vision of riders amongst the trees of Israel is a vision of four multicolored horses with some differences from the horses John saw, but clearly accomplishing similar goals. They ride throughout the earth and they bring judgment on those who deserve judgment. Up to this point, they have been hostile to Judah for its sin. However, what Zechariah sees is that these judgment beings, angels, at least as far as we can tell from the New Testament, are no longer bringing judgment on Judah because God has finished punishing them for their sin. He's brought them back from exile, but they are still roving about the earth to bring judgment on others. Visions two and three are really descriptions of this as well, although three describes the fact that God will protect Judah. He's measuring it, specifically the city of Jerusalem, so that he can protect it. Now, the middle two visions from a Christian perspective, a New Testament perspective, are probably the most exciting because these seem to have direct correlation to ourselves. I already mentioned vision number four. In vision number four, Zechariah sees someone he knows. It's the high priest, Joshua. And Joshua is bedecked in terrible, dirty clothes. Okay, Pastor Brad and Johnny and I had dirty clothes on yesterday, digging stuff out of the garage. He's all dusty. He's got gross stuff on him. And the Lord orders his attendants to take those robes off of Joshua and instead put on bright new linens. We know from quotations from the New Testament that this is a double type of Christ. The Joshua himself actually is representing Christ in a sense, but the robes that are being exchanged is a picture of Christ's exchange of righteousness. And we talked about that last time. The golden lampstand, which is a menorah, a seven-headed lamp or a candle with seven lights, according to what Zechariah says, actually relates to the fact that God will cover his people with his spirit. This is almost undoubtedly, although we can't be entirely sure about this, a reference to how God represented the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts with tongues of fire. This is probably a reference back to Zechariah and the golden lampstand. Although there's no New Testament scripture that states that explicitly, the parallels are certainly interesting. So I'll leave that for you to consider. The final three visions, the flying scroll, the basket, and the four chariots are all clearly visions of judgment that seemingly were future visions. Now again, these three prophecies are entirely possible that they are both short-term and long-term. They probably occurred 
to Israel and its surrounding enemies at the time, they also probably describe the end times because, again, they have a lot of parallels in Revelation. No direct quotes, but there's certainly a lot of evidence here. The flying scroll goes about condemning those who lie and steal and cheat, and eventually it destroys and gathers them all. This sounds like the Battle of Armageddon, perhaps. The basket does something similar, and the four chariots are a very clear parallel to the four horsemen riding about, destroying the wicked, and gathering them together for a final judgment. So you can dig deep into these six chapters. You can find much symbology that points forward towards what the New Testament teaches as well. Again, the challenge is making sure that we only state what Scripture is sure about, and much of it we probably we'll find out someday once God has taken us away from here, he's raptured us out and we look back, it will all begin to make sense. But trying to use it to make predictions, of course, as with all New Testament prophecy, is impossible. It's not given so that we can predict the future. That is not its purpose. It's to remind us God is in fact in control. Now, chapters 7 and 8 are quite different. They are a historical interlude. They seem to be made of two events that actually happened. The first is this. A delegation from the town of Bethel comes to Zechariah to ask a question. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. Or in other words, they actually sent these guys to ask God a question. Specifically, they ask a rather specific law question. Is it okay to fast during the fifth and the seventh months? These actually have Hebrew calendar significance. These were feast dates. Specifically, the seventh month is the Feast of Booths, which traditionally the Israelites did fast during this, although that's not actually something that is required by Scripture. Uh, The fifth month, we're not exactly sure what they were celebrating, but this is just a law question seemingly on the surface, and why it's included would not be clear if God didn't explain it to us. God really doesn't answer the question. What he does is he points out that the Israelites are actually focusing on the wrong things. The Israelites are concerned about the specific practices that they're accomplishing. What God's actually concerned about is their general state of obedience. Don't get hyperfixated on when you fast. Ask yourself, am I obeying what God has commanded me to obey. And this is really Haggai's message again. So Zechariah is continuing to preach this message to the people. By the way, this is in a sense bad news for the Israelites because God having to repeat the same message that we just got the book beforehand probably means they're not listening. God does, however, summarize. Oh, I did want to show you Bethel. Bethel is located right there. Jerusalem is right here. So this is still a very narrow geographical window. This is a map from an earlier period, but really the kingdom of Judah is quite small at this time, if you were wondering where Bethel was. Really the point here, though, is that God is calling the Israelites to be better than they have been in the past. However, uh, while God is calling them to that, he also makes a promise. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall say to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. 
Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So after a long description of what Israel should be doing, this section, these four verses are very clearly a prophecy about the end times. Because there has been no point in human history where really large numbers of people other than the Jews have come to Jerusalem to worship. Most likely this describes the millennial reign. This actually functions both as a call to obedience and a promise of God's long-term success. God says, obey the way that I have told you to and remember in the end, I win. My kingdom shall be established and there's coming a day where everyone will come to worship me. And again, the context here is they will come to worship me correctly and obey me the way that they are supposed to. And again, I think this is a, uh, a heartwarming moment for us as non-Jews because again, this shows that God has a redemptive plan outside of Israel. He will save members of every nation of every tongue. This is a universal thing that God will do. Again, this specific event being described here is the millennial kingdom, which is still in the future for us. But God's care for all of humanity is on display here. The final section of the book are Zechariah's oracles. If I can give you a, a bit of perhaps contextual or, or criticism that the book of Zechariah sometimes receives, and that is that these six chapters, 9 through 14, are very different from the preceding chapters. Uh, they tend to be a lot more negative in their outlook. Now, this has led some people to suspect there is a different author. Another reason that people challenge Zechariah's author is he makes a bunch of predictions, all of which are correct. And so clearly he couldn't have predicted these things. They must have been written much later. Hopefully we would reject that idea. In fact, I think in general we can reject an idea that Zechariah is not the author of these six chapters. However, there is a tone difference. I suspect the reason there's a tone difference is that this is likely written much later. In fact, Zechariah begins to use different words than he has in the past. He doesn't describe what he sees now as visions, but as oracles. This word oracle in Hebrew has a specific meaning. It literally means something to be given. So something that the Lord has given me that I now need to give to others. So Zechariah 9.1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus as its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. Now, this is not just directed at Damascus, although it's one of the many places that God has things to say about. God actually describes a large majority of the ancient Near East, and he describes the fact that there is judgment coming. God pronounces that the cities and the people that have opposed him and that have disobeyed him will suffer consequences. And he will replace the existing structure with a king who he also describes as the good shepherd. We actually already looked at many of these good shepherd references last week, the most notable of which was in chapter 11, where Zechariah is literally commanded to act out something. He goes and he takes care of sheep that are condemned to death, and he does a good job and he shepherds them and he protects them from evil men who want to come and destroy the sheep. However, Zechariah is rejected by the owners of the sheep 
and he is paid 30 pieces of silver, which of course is a reference to the price that Judas would receive for betraying Jesus. But this is God announcing a future good shepherd. Now, God announces that Israel will again be punished for their lack of obedience. This has actually led some scholars to go the other direction. Rather than thinking this was written much later, they actually think that it was written much earlier. And this actually occurs before the Jews were punished by Babylon. But that does not seem to be the case. Instead, this is God saying, Israel, I told you in chapter 7 and 8, obey But you haven't. And so again, there has to be judgment. There has to be punishment, not only on the surrounding nations, which are rejecting me, but on you, because you again are rejecting me. In fact, what Zechariah actually predicts seems to be the campaigns of Alexander the Great. And I could absolutely bore you to tears in talking about all of those, but I won't. Generally, that's what Zechariah talks about. Invasions of Tyre and Philistia and Egypt and Greece, all of things that canonically um, Alexander did, Zechariah is predicting, much like Daniel. Daniel actually predicts much of what uh, Alexander does as well, which is why secular scholars tend to challenge both books as written much later after Alexander did his thing because the details given in the two books combined are uncanny, almost like God knew what was going to happen in the future, which is pretty cool. That being said, as we get to the end of the book, things start to get much more positive because we begin to have the announcements of the destiny of all mankind. And these are pretty good. First of all, As we look across both vision sections of the book, we actually find some things that both sections have in common. For example, we see in both sections of the book all of these topics. We see that God is imminent in human affairs. He cares what's going on. Gentiles will be included into God's people. There is a coming king who will replace the sinful men who are in fact currently poor leaders. God will intervene on behalf of Jerusalem, which really stands for his people. There will be a cleansing from sin, which will finally give Jerusalem the security it craves. And of course, all other nations, all those who oppose God, will be destroyed and defeated. Now, Zechariah dials in on this even more closely in the final closing section of the book. We have a description of a future siege of Jerusalem, which I will tell you, this is one of those prophecies we can be quite confident in. This is long term. This has not occurred yet. Because the siege described by Zechariah is very precise. There is a siege. The enemies of Jerusalem win a great battle, but they don't take the city. And at the last possible moment in Zechariah 14, 3 and 4, God saves Jerusalem. And in his salvation of Jerusalem, he literally destroys his enemies, splits the Mount of Olives in two, and eventually reconstitutes not only the old system of feasts and celebration, but he brings about the ultimate holiness of Jerusalem and God's people. This can only, of course, refer to the final siege that Jerusalem will ever undergo during the end times. Really, what this is a reference to is Christ's return and his victory in the battle of the Armageddon. Specifically, Zechariah 14.9, I think, is the right note to end on. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. 
Now, we had to fly through Zechariah. However, remember what the point of these end times prophecies really are. The point is this, that our God, Jesus Christ, wins. And we can be encouraged that no matter what is going on in our world, no matter how much it seems like human governments are spinning their wheels, no matter how much it seems like conflict is going on all throughout the world, and perhaps what seemed like God's kingdom on earth was being ushered in is falling apart around our ears, the reality is that God is still in control. He will still win, and He always is going to win. In fact, as long as we keep obeying Him... We get to take part in his final victory in one form or another. So if anything about these end times can encourage us, it's that thought that Jesus, our God, wins. And he will be king over all the earth. Let's start serving him now and rejoice in the fact that our God will win in the end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Lord, help us as we think about the future, to remember that you, our God, are going to be the king over all the earth. In fact, you already are, although your kingdom is not yet visible, but someday it will be, Lord. We thank you that you have included us, you've brought us underneath your protection, you've saved us from our sin. We thank you for that. We thank you for your great power. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. 
The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.